0: Things used to break, and now they don't.
1: Things still break, it's just that it's much easier to fix them now.
0: The ability to unwind a bad release, we're much better at that than we ever were before. There's an increasing amount of trust. One of the things that's happened along with continuous delivery and software is actually much more nimble go-to-markets that are being built around businesses. It's a virtuous cycle where the continuous delivery capabilities actually allow you to evolve your
2: business model too. It's never the early vision, that's it. It's more often being lucky than good. Hi, I'm Paul Berger, founder of CircleCI.
1: I'm Edith Harva, CEO and co founder at LaunchDarkly.
2: And you're listening to To Be Continuous, a podcast about continuous delivery and software development.
1: You can get in touch with us anytime at our Twitter handle, at ContinuousCast.
2: The show is brought to you by HeavyBit. To learn more, visit HeavyBit.com. And while you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. Hey, so what do you like about
1: continuous delivery?
0: continuous delivery i think really for me is an interesting kind of manifestation of a broader trend which is about the the ability for organizations today to move faster than they ever had before it's really um, one of the things that helps drive nimbleness in software development which ultimately as more and more businesses are run through software allows companies to be more flexible and quick moving and so you said nimble than ever before, and and you know that has profound implications in terms of the ability for these companies to innovate. So,
1: well, so now would be and a they, great time did, for our guests to introduce themselves.
0: Oh yeah,
2: ah. let's start there. This is Scott Rainey. I am a partner with Redpoint Ventures. Fire away. Okay, so so a company comes to you for funding, and they release once a month. Yeah. Uh, what what do you think? I don't know that I I would draw any conclusions based on you know they release once a month. I really? think
0: you know I think in the end I think what's really important. Is that they're doing? I think what's what they feel is right for them and their ability to move uh, quickly enough. It would be unusual today to mm-hmm. have a company that's releasing once a month. I mean, we're obviously seeing, for the most part, companies that are releasing far more often than that. I don't know. I wouldn't draw any necessarily draw any conclusions because I would assume that these guys know the you know, the, the right pace for mm-hmm. them for for whatever reason. Obviously, one of the things that we see a lot is is companies that are really being driven more and more by mobile, and that has there real right, right right issues and challenges associated with the ability to move quickly there and some of the things that you know companies like Lawrence Darkly are trying to help address but you know i um, i think the most important thing is we feel like it's a it's a company that that is set up to move as quickly as required to actually be able to drive the kind of innovation that we like to see and we want to believe that they are an organization that's operating and building a software architecture and development pipeline that will be an asset as opposed to a liability.
1: I, I think that's a really good point you made. Um, so I talked the other day to somebody who said, you know, I asked how often they released and they said three times a year. Yeah. Kind of, my jaw kind of dropped. I'm like, well, do you, do you do you want to release faster? And they're like, no. I'm like, that's fine. Yeah. I, I, I think if if that's a pace that you and your customers are happy with, that's fine. I think. Yeah. I th- I think it's the people who want to release faster but can't.
0: It's also like you know, if you're releasing enterprise software that's being delivered and um, sitting on people's servers behind their firewall, then the release cycles need to be, you know, more slowly because it has to happen in a way that the customers can actually absorb it. But obviously, more and more stuff is being delivered through as you know as a service, mm-hmm. and we we would expect that release cycles would be much faster. So I, I
2: think even for for enterprise software, I mean, when when, when I look at why are people delivering continuously like it, it really started as you know developers just want to get their code out and so in in that world I can see you know if you're releasing every quarter or three times a year whatever you know developers get pissed off but it'll, it'll be fine but where where I'm seeing the the vast uh, or the, the majority of the impetus for continuous delivery is in customer validation and in being able to get like the feedback cycles of things so if someone is is shipping once a quarter what what is their feedback cycle like Well, I mean,
0: I think that, um, again, it depends ultimately, too, on just what's being released as a part of these releases. I mean, how much new capabilities Mm -hmm. and new functionality is being introduced. You can release every day, but if it's something that's like you're changing the color on one page that's very deep down in the bottom of some service, who really cares, right? Right, right. So, you know, again, I think it comes back that, yeah, maybe the way to think about this isn't how often you release, but how significant these releases are, how much you're actually changing... And evolving the product, and and in what cadence is that happening? Yeah, you know, one one thing I would say is that what we're seeing, particularly for companies that have software behind the firewall, one of the trends that we've seen in the last couple of years is actually cloud managed software. Right. So it actually looks a lot like SaaS. It's 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 software. There's one code base. Mm-hmm. When there's a release, it's pushed out and it's pushed out through all behind the firewall to these organizations. And there's a cloud layer that does all the management. Which again facilitates, you know, allowing companies to innovate mm-hmm. and release software much faster than they ever have been before. You know, that's a bit of a side note, but I think it it kind of reinforces one of the reasons that people are doing that is because they want a faster right. customer feedback cycle. But they also want to reduce the cost for organizations to own that software, and a lot of times that mm-hmm. relates back to like if there's a new release, the whole process they have go through to deploy. Well, it you used to have
2: you used to have this this thing where you'd you'd build. Software and then you'd branch off the software yeah. and you'd take that to release while development continues on the main yep. branch. Right. And then you'd, you'd end up backporting these fixes yeah. for, for the key customers that, that, that were on those releases. And as Circle now makes on-prem software and we, we ship it to, to customers, but customers stay on a, on a more or less... The, 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 there is one version of the software. There's no way that you'll be, you know, still running. Or the, the, there's no way that we're backporting fixes to to any of the old changes at all.
0: No, and I, I, it's actually. I was very surprised when we first saw this trend emerging with a set of mm-hmm. companies that were thinking about delivering software that way. I wasn't sure exactly how enterprises would react to it, but we've got three or four portfolio companies, and they get no pushback. And in fact, actually, think now it's an asset because it really does. They can say the total cost of owning the software is substantially less than it would be if you mm-hmm. were, if we were handing you software and you right, were deploying right, right. it yourself. And wait, wait, I,
1: wait, So you're saying if if they're running it as a SaaS or if they're running it
0: cloud managed SaaS? So it's like software that's running on your hardware. You're my customer. You can run it on your hardware, but you don't manage it. I do for yeah, you. Yes, and. You know, I think that that's a, that's a really interesting trend because it allows us to kind of, sometimes there are certain customers or certain capabilities where customers don't want to move that information or the data or that workflow or that process to the cloud, but we can still deliver yeah. You know, we can still innovate and move just as quickly and efficiently as we can if we were a pure SaaS business mm-hmm. as a vendor. So. It's
2: it's it's a lovely model because so we, we've got we've got a handful of customers that that, that are on yeah. that that particular model versus the 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 pure on prem. Yeah. And for us, we're doing auto scaling of like you know very very large fleets, yeah. uh, and it's it's difficult to do that sort of that sort of auto scaling in a pure hands off environment. So, like, if we sell Circle on prem and, and you have tens of thousands of machines that, that 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 you want in this fleet, you're going to end up doing some sort of management. So we, you know, the, the customers that, that that fit that profile are, and I'd say this is this is still early stages, but like we're managing their fleet that that they pay for that's on their hardware, and it's it's just a, an easier model for them because we don't, and it's easier for us as well because we don't have to build this perfect. Software fleet management, scalability management, which is a very difficult challenge, and it's yeah. We 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 have a little bit of flexibility, like we do in the cloud service, where there's an ops team that actually keeps an eye on that sort of thing. So
1: how how do you price that? Do you price in the cost of your ops team managing these instances? Is this really turning into ops as a service?
2: Um, I I don't think it's, it's it's quite ops as a service, but it's it's certainly leveraging the the tools that we've built to manage the the the, the dot com, which I, I would describe as more. It's not. It's not quite hands on, but it's sort of like you know human guided, rather than just a pure software solution.
0: I think it's only slightly more expensive to support these customers than it is a cloud customer. When you get right down to it, if you do it right and you yeah.
2: build it right, and in, in in the end of the day, it's it's purely like there are set margins that you have to get. So we we will price it so that we get the margins that we're looking for, uh, and it doesn't matter what, what exact way that goes.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I like the idea. It's something that we're investigating at LaunchDarkly, also. Mm.
0: Yeah, and there's companies like Gravitational, Replicated, mm-hmm. and others that are that are helping take right. kind of traditional SaaS businesses to help get them find the firewall. I'm really excited to see you know where those things go because the reality is, the building that management layer. It, I think a lot of times people they try to tack it on later, and it's really really hard to do that.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, you kind of have to think about it from the beginning. So. And so, uh, I was looking at the replicated site today, and they they have like at the very start uh, of their of their features, it's that they do they allow continuously deliver. Yeah, or they allow software to be continuously delivered right. to their to their own brand customers. And it's,
0: it, it looks and it should match exactly what your 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 traditional flow is, whatever mm-hmm. that their customer is, whether it looks like for their SaaS capabilities. Mm-hmm. So
2: I don't know. We'll see what happens, but that's a that's a new and interesting model. So you 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 see a lot of those those kind of enterprise pitches and and Mm -hmm. people. uh, What percentage of of your companies get any of that sort of pushback from from more traditional enterprises? What kind of pushback do you mean? Uh, That that continuous delivery doesn't work, or we want you know a longer release cycle and and maintain branches or all all that sort of
0: jazz. You know, honestly, I'm not on the front lines having these conversations, but I'd say that that is. You know, increasingly, by far the exception versus the rule. You know, I think that uh, you know, again, it depends on its how it's it's packaged. Yeah. It depends on what it is. Like if we're if it's a storage software subsystem, yeah, 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 that's very different. Yeah, right. You know, there the the considerations that go into thinking about release cycles there and and. All that stuff, the testing they have to do. I mean, you know, the, that's more sophisticated. But even with that, we have a startup that's actually doing cloud managed storage, and right. you know, so I think that even that's evolving.
2: Well, I, yeah, I can't imagine shipping a box that you know that that has software on it. Like, it just seems like such a challenge to to keep to keep that that innovating. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I think it is, and that's why frankly, yeah, you know, even in the storage space now, it's almost all software. They're almost all software
2: businesses, now. right? So you talked about mobile, and that—that that was a that—that's still the interesting challenge that yeah th- that well, people have. I,
1: I think it's gotten a lot easier. Like I do I re- tell, like it used to be the average, and this is the average App Store review was nine days, and if that's the average, that means that there's some much longer. I think Apple realized that this was really hurting them, and now the average App Store review is about a day and a half.
0: Wow. Yeah, and they just yeah. announced that. Uh, I you know I don't remember. I just read somewhere where I think now it's two to three day kind of. It's almost a two to three day commitment. Yeah. And so, but still, you know, two to three days is two to three days. It's not but, like you know, it's better than it used yeah. <laughs> to be, but it's it's still not what you know what we
2: think of as you know, kind of traditional web cycles. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the important part of this is is that there there has already been a decoupling of software landing from from feature being turned on. Yeah. Um, so obviously, looking in Edith's direction here. Are you um, to tell me more? Uh, so, so feature flags are this thing that. I yeah, Thanks. Thanks for wearing your launch darkly shirt today, by the way. So, it kind of doesn't matter that much anymore. Like, if, if, you, if you're shipping a software every two to three days for your mobile device, and you have feature flags behind it, you you essentially have continuous delivery because by the time you you turn on the the feature for you know hundreds of thousands of people, you've been you've been gradually spinning that up over a yeah. couple of weeks.
0: The so, other thing that's important is the auto updating that's happening on the mobile devices now too, which is like it used to be that. You release these things, and you might get it every two to three days, but your 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 end users aren't updating yeah. that often. Yeah. And now that uh, that's uh, that's less and less of an issue as well.
1: Yeah, that was the bane of our existence at Tripit—like people on really, really, really old versions.
0: Yeah, yeah, and did now you it's hard and harder stop to them working?
1: Oh, I mean, the thing is, consumers are consumers, and their version isn't working, and they're in you know, say they're on a business trip to Brazil. Right. Like they're, they just, they're auto just update over there they're just pissed off at us that something isn't working and it's hard to and it's hard to get an update because you're traveling. So auto update helps because then you can do it auto and not at the point of pain, which for a travel app was usually when you're out of the country and are in pain and in a hurry.
2: I'm surprised there was ever an option to to manually update like what what was the point there?
1: Well, I think people are so burned by like the whole Windows 10 update that's going on right now. Where like Windows 10 has this massive update that is killing a lot of people's computers.
0: Oh wow! Well, I also think that in the early days too, I think it's an artifact that the decisions were made, you know, back in 2007, 2008, which is like you didn't want people to actually burn through their data plans too, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, you know, you, you you have to realize that there's a responsibility you have, and that the end user is actually paying for all the data mm-hmm. that's being consumed. So, um, but that's obviously become less of an issue now as as uh, data rates have gone up.
2: I've always seen that, that this, this idea of, you know, you really want to have control over your software or you, the and on the one hand you can look at it as like a, a free software foundation, you know, view of the world where you want to have control over everything that runs on, on, on your device. But but still you, you, you hear people who are just like, I, I want to know what version is installed. I, I, I care about what updates are installed. And frankly I don't I don't understand any of it. I, I, I want to see none of that.
1: I, I think some of it comes from a place of fear. Like if you're if you're you remember when stuff broke all the time and you're like I just want a stable version
0: mm-hmm.
1: that that's why people want to know if you, if you have trust then you don't really care
0: yeah I agree with that
1: like for a website like what what time did you, do you ever look at like a SaaS product and ask what version is on no right that, that why do you agree
0: because yeah, I think you, things used to break I mean honestly and now they don't I think part of it is that we've gotten a lot better. As an industry, are doing all these things, and so I think people—it's almost like there's the a correlation less.
2: between continuous delivery and the, the things not breaking as much.
0: Well, yeah, there might be. There may be, <laughs> there's a relationship.
2: <laughs> you guys ought to do a podcast. About
1: it. <laughs> we ought to have a guest named Scott. No, yeah. um, I, I think that things still break. It's just that it's much easier to fix them now mm-hmm. because, like in the example you're just giving of having a physical box somewhere. Right. If something broke, you would have to go physically update
2: that. Yeah. Like it was in an, a. Um, the, the sooner you can fix it, the sooner.
1: Yeah, I saw this great talk, and I was at Continuous Lifecycle London. It was this lady who used to physically solder programs into cash registers. Mm. So I mean, if there that, was a book, okay,
0: that is that is the exact opposite of what we're talking about here today. Right? Yeah. So, so like m- money. Things like
1: is a, that. What you mean? Yeah, like a cash register has okay. programs in them, and okay. to update the program, you would physically take a chip and solder in the new program.
2: So I, I, th- I thought we we're talking like parts of the of the CPU. There's the cache. There's the registers. And oh she's no. <laughs> <some sort> of <laughs> no! This is
1: literally um, cache, um cash. C A S H.
2: Good clarification. Yeah. Um, in case our listeners at home were, were wondering which it was.
1: But, but I think a lot of that that was the original software. Right. Yeah. You know, it was it was just one step up from the physical hardware, and so there's a lot of legacy of oh, it needs to be perfect because mm-hmm. it's going to get placed everywhere.
0: But I tell you, I you know what's interesting is just how quickly I think big enterprises are are changing the way they look at that, and mm-hmm. I actually think that uh, it bodes really well for you know the startup ecosystem and for innovation, and that um, there's an increasing amount of trust and. Uh, you know I think that's a phenomenal thing and a great catalyst for all of us here
1: do you have any stories of enterprises or anything you can share
0: I don't know that I have any specific stories other than I could just tell you as I, as I said anecdotally in our businesses you know that are that are going to enterprises the way that they do release processes now is you know has changed well, when did you see that tipping point um, I would say probably two to three years ago is when it started happening and maybe you know kind of two to one to two years ago it was like, you know this idea, for instance, of cloud-managed software mm-hmm. became, you know, more widely accepted. I also think Amazon AWS has been a big part of this, which is actually just this idea that, um, you know, it's obviously very different, but the idea of relying on third party for some kind of element of cloud-managed software and infrastructure has kind of changed the way that people think about, you know, expectations.
1: It's made things a lot cheaper and easier.
0: Yeah, it's that for sure and it's also just like, you know, it used to be that we had to run our own hardware and yeah. now we can turn over all that infrastructure over to somebody. So hey, you know what? It's not that big of a deal if somebody wants to update if we can do that, then if somebody wants to update software on the fly for us,
2: they can do that, mm-hmm. you know. There's yeah. a there's an interesting parallel to um, in Jeff Bezos's last uh, annual report or letter or something. Uh, he talks about the the difference between uh, type 2 decisions and type 1 decisions. Yeah. So type 1 I uh, can never remember which is one and two. But, well, let's call one the one that, that is very, very difficult to change, and you you have to put you know an awful lot of forethought and planning into it. And type two is the the decision that's very easy to change. But and, we spend the same amount of time on type twos as we do type ones a lot of times, even though one right, is easy right. to unwind. Right? Yeah. And so I, I think where where you get this 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 thing of trust, um, it, you know, it ties a lot to to type two decisions, and and, and the same thing with like. A box that 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 you ship into the uh, into data centers is a type one decision, or yeah. Yeah. soldering into cash register. Well that's a, a I mean maybe that
0: decision. maybe that's a great maybe that's one of the reasons why I mean the ability to unwind a bad oh. release is yeah. we're we're much better at that than we ever were before, and part of it is through all the stuff we're talking about here, right?
1: Yeah, I mean reversibility. Yeah. I, so I, to, I don't I hate plugging my own company, so usually I let <laughs> Paul do it. But um, feature flags are really about reversibility. Yeah. The fact that you can always roll back very quickly to a known good version without having to redeploy, right? And it creates a lot of freedom.
0: Yeah. So hey, you know what? You know, maybe it wasn't perfect. Well, the reality is the cost is low because we can get it back to where it was before.
2: Yeah. There was a blog post I wrote several years ago about the Amazon Kindle on iOS disaster. So Kindle released a new version on iOS that deleted uh, all their customers' libraries.
1: Well, uh, Apple does that on purpose now.
2: <laughs> they do. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's so a, it's it a was,
1: feature, not a bug. Uh,
2: I mean, it, it deleted their, their cloud libraries, not 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 just the the music that they had on their on uh, on their phones. What happened was Apple fast tracked uh, Amazon's uh, new version of Kindle, and you know, a day later, the the disaster had been. Kind of largely averted, but it was, it was a disaster. I feel that 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 happened in the first place because of the lack of continuous delivery. That you you know th- they have to ship this big release. They probably shipped it uh, you know every month or something like that, and the confluence of several different decisions have to be made at the same time. so there's a there's a big kind of like type one, are we gonna ship this decision? Because there is no type two, let's let's immediately and very quickly roll it back. And and the result of that is is a whole bunch of software that goes out together that has unintended consequences. Yeah, yeah the
0: N squared problem with all those right. features, like, you know, how does it work? Yeah. Yep.
1: Yeah, but we were talking before about kind of the Air Force jet disaster. I mm. like Scott's description of it.
0: Well I don't know yeah, I don't remember exactly what, what part of the description you like, but I mean it's just interesting to me that this is a you know, 10 to 15, 20 year project that's gone on and you know the scale and scope of it it's basically just something that was it's just trying to be a little bit of everything to everybody as a result that's not really good at anything that it does. And uh, it's you know when you do 20 year release cycles, that's what happens. you spend you know a trillion dollars on something that in the end is not nearly as good. Uh, as maybe even its predecessors of many of the capabilities that they were looking for. So it's uh, I would love to believe that there's the the concept of continuous delivery and deployment that would be possible for you know
2: projects of that scale, but you know, I don't know. I mean, it's it's it sounds almost like, and, and I, I don't want to I don't want to suggest that this might actually be the case, but it sounds like it might not actually be in people's interests to you know deliver a working product versus continually pumping money into the. Well, uh, that's that's that is mean, I, would, I wouldn't like to suggest there's any sort of political oh or yeah. lobbyist motivation behind yeah. this this thing at well, all.
1: So I grew up in D.C. I'll briefly defend D.C. I do think people want to see successes. I mean like healthcare.gov was an awful, awful, awful egg in the face for all involved. Nobody came out looking good. And it wasn't like, oh, you screwed up, here's more money to fix it. You know they brought in a completely new team and started over again with very
2: much well the, the, that was a, a, sort of a difference in uh, in how previous plans had gone so normally when when that thing happens you just keep money pumping into it until someone gives up and then, <laughs> and then the yeah. same team gets deployed to a different part of the government to, to get hundreds of millions of dollars of damage yeah I think the sad thing so the extent of
1: the jet thing is that they can't even take off. It's not like they have a sporadic glitch that might affect them. <laughs> it's that like, like literally these are, you know, a trillion dollar paperweight.
2: One of the kind of comparisons that people always make is is you know real engineering products to, to software engineering or pr- processes, yeah. and you start to see in in the real world a little bit more of continuous delivery like creeping in. So you, you look at the um, hardware startups in, in Shenzhen for example yeah. that are changing the cycle time from you might you might get a prototype in a, in a week here if you're lucky and if you're a different part of the world you might get it in a month in, in Shenzhen you get it in in a day. Uh, you're you're missing a component. You go down to the component market, and it's a multi-block warehouse that that sells you uh, the exact component you need, and and you can get that cycle time down really, really low. Yeah. It's also that so many of the you know we look at a lot of hardware
0: projects too, and so much of it now is being done in software. So, what you really look for is almost like this generic hardware platform that allows you to build the software build software capabilities so that you know if you do make mistakes or there are issues or there are mm-hmm. antenna problems et etc hopefully many of those things can be fixed in software right and but you know sometimes that's just not possible
1: have you ever seen a, a company just go completely awry with an air Force type disaster
0: um, I have mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm not gonna uh, I won't mention names I haven't seen it in a long time uh, honestly in terms of like just the, I've seen people. I've seen companies do that where it's not the software or the product as much as it is maybe the way they thought about building the business mm-hmm. and and maybe one of the things that one of the things that's happened along with continuous delivery and software is actually much more nimble go to markets that are being built mm-hmm. around businesses that allow you to solicit feedback much more readily and, and actually they do them validate more them earlier. Yeah. They're able to validate them earlier, but also like it's not the top down, you know, long sales cycle that there's more bottoms up that allows you to. Get feedback and then tune your go-to-market, which obviously then rolls back into your product, and mm-hmm. you know it's a virtuous cycle where the continuous delivery capabilities actually allow you to evolve your business model too. But you know, so it's rare that we see companies just kind of fly right off the end of the runway or right into the cliff in the way mm-hmm. they used to. But um,
2: it still happens from time to time. I, I see a bunch of it. Good. Yeah. So I, I talk to very very early stage startups that are you know their question is how how do we raise money sometimes or yeah. you know we're running off our off our savings and for for a lot of them that that have done in a lot of times my answer is you know you don't have product market fit and you need to validate yeah. and iterate your way there and so i do see people who are you know running off whatever meager savings they have because they never learned the lessons of of the lean startup of of continuous iteration of validation but i think that that's mostly uh, hopefully, kind of taken care of by the time they they hit any sort of traction or product market fit. Like yeah. they don't get that far. They don't get to like yeah, to, it's pitch rare, you.
0: Yeah, uh, it's it, typically a though. lot of that is the very initial part of product market fit. The, the reality is product market fit is a. It's not a one. There's not. It doesn't yeah. happen all at one time. It
2: happens over the, a period of time. And it's never the it's never the early vision. That's it. So you yeah. you have to be good at iterating well, the, to get there.
1: The market itself changes. Well yeah. Like things like if you tried to build an app ten years ago, like people were trying to build an app ten years ago, it's just the carriers made it
0: impossible to put them mm-hmm. on. Absolutely. Yeah. We funded, you know, a number of businesses that did
2: that. And it not yeah. not easy companies to build.
1: Yeah.
2: I, I, I guess you're kind of in the business of, of funding a lot of people who are ready for something that hasn't quite happened yet. Yeah. And so like if you don't know and correct me if I'm wrong here but if you don't know exactly how or when the thing that they rely on is going to happen so they need to be constantly iterating and constantly yeah. validating to to get that right.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean and and sometimes unfortunately the market they're just too far ahead of the market which yeah. is you know there's no no amount of iteration and the amount of nimbleness is going to help you in that situation if customers just aren't ready to mm-hmm. for whatever reason kind of embrace the value proposition you put. It was, it was yeah. very
2: interesting around the start of of Circle CI. So there was there was companies that were like two years ahead of us that that died. Yeah. Um, or in, in one case that, that that pivoted to to a different product, and then companies that started about a year after us, it was it was too late. The the market was was kind of or the opportunity was yeah. was closed. Yeah. yeah. Um So like the the too early, too late. Like there there was one sweet spot, and it's not like we we knew it. Uh, Or we we knew why. In retrospect, we can look back and we and we can say it was the the tools and it was the freedom of allowing your source code to escape that that made that the thing. But you can't you can't tell it all. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'd love to hear some real examples from Scott if he can say anything without breaching confidentiality about companies that were too soon, too late, didn't have time.
0: I'm I'm always terrible about being able to, to drum up things in real time. Just advice you'd give because you're a board yeah, member. Yeah, I wouldn't want to I always want to be respectful of folks because the reality is one thing I can tell you about this timing thing is it's it's more often being lucky than good. Uh, sometimes being really good allows you to time it right because you just really understand all the things coming together. A lot of times you just timed it you just got lucky that you timed it really, really well. You know, the thing that the the feedback that we give all the time though now, and it, this is very different than it was even like five, six, seven, eight years ago, is that you can get so much more feedback on, you know, product and product market fit earlier with less money than you ever before. That you just you're crazy not to do it, you know. And so the definition of minimal viable product, at which point you can go out and actually start collecting this feedback, is always the hard thing. It's like where's that line? Like what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable? What's enough and what isn't? You know, that's an inexact science, and sometimes you know companies will make mistakes about not not putting in enough or taking too much time, but we just spent a lot of time sitting around board meetings talking about how can you go out and so you know can you get the product in front of folks and start to solicit real feedback, even even at the expense of thinking about revenue. So you know I think that um, once you've raised a little bit of venture money, you kind of have the luxury of actually being a little bit more thinking, a little bit more long term, and it gives you the ability to actually spend time thinking about, for instance, like any developer-facing business. You know our feedback is always. Get developers to love it. Win over the hearts and minds of developers, mm-hmm. and then worry about monetization later. Right, and with a little bit of venture money, it's 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 easier for companies to do it. It's frankly easy for me as a venture guy to tell entrepreneurs to do that, and it's sometimes a very harrowing experience. But <laughs> you know what you want more than anything is to get a bunch of people using your product and uh, loving it. And more often than not, if they really love it and they're using it and engaged in it in a really meaningful way, there's a business model to be layered on top of it. So. You know that's not a great model for all companies, but certainly for ones that, you know, the ones that I spend a lot of time on, with, that are that are selling through developers to to other people and organizations. The the, the most important thing we can do is is just build something that, that that folks love. The other thing that I would say is one really interesting dilemma. Then is we've talked about this before, but you know, these companies that actually use developers and you know because because through continuous delivery, developers are playing a bigger and bigger role in selecting the components of the of the infrastructure that's actually used to build not only the product but also that the business is run on. That you know what you want to do is you want to win over the hearts and minds of developers, getting to use it. But at some point, you have to trigger in your in your business the ability to actually market to the people that ultimately will be paying for the product. And how do you simultaneously run a marketing campaign organization that, that's winning over the hearts and minds of developers while convincing product managers or CFOs that they should be paying? For a product that has kind of made its way into the stack through through the developers, and that is a uh, that's a really challenging exercise to go through. Mm-hmm.
2: So GitHub had this uh, had this concept that they called the clamp, that's coming from the bottom and coming from the top at the same time. Yeah. So when you're a company that, that that's like GitHub, and I mean th- this is several years old, but even by then they were they were they were huge and they were able to go for the the top down. CIO sale at the same time as as they were doing the bottom up, but I think if you're a, if you're I'm, a much smaller I, company, that there's much more of a challenge of getting that.
0: Yeah, and I would argue by the time they started executing on the clamp, that they had won over the the, the developer developer yeah. ecosystem. Oh yeah, all of it. Yeah. And so you know, again, that's kind of back to saying once you once you win over those folks, then the, the amount of leverage you have in those mm-hmm. conversations is very very different. And so. I don't think the right way is to think about coming from the top and then Mm -hmm. eventually kind of try to build up the bottom. And I you know, that's an obvious statement, but frankly it's it's amazing in the the heat of war how many times (laughs) um, companies, you know, make mistakes on that front. Like do you mean
1: are you always a favor of going bottoms up then or
0: I'm not always. It depends on the business. And obviously what I'm talking about a lot of here is is kind of these developer facing businesses, but and so there's certain cases where that doesn't make sense. Again, like some core enterprise infrastructure businesses you know that's not a bottoms-up game but um, you know I, I do think for and in a lot of SaaS businesses it's not it's not going to be a bottoms up but I do think that anytime where you're trying to you're building something that's kind of democratizing um, some capability in some way the best thing to do is to get as many people using it as possible and then you'll find that it's it's much easier to, to monetize but it's it's a you know requires generally for these companies to hire on some a different capability the ability to kind of exert that pressure from the top,
2: mm-hmm.
0: You know, sometimes that's an unnatural act because you're dealing with folks and many times the people that are building these products are developers building for developers. So.
1: it certainly see both sides. I mean at TripIt we were hugely successful because we had all the individual travelers and then travelers yeah. also have budget because by their very nature usually
2: almost always somebody's traveling because they're important.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: Mm-hmm. So you you, you you spoke on uh, was it Tom's podcast? Uh, yeah. a while back, uh, and I, I was listening to that. And it, was, it was it was great. And if you're if you're listening to this, you should go back and, and listen to to Scott being well, that, on, that, on, on Tom's podcast.
1: That's why I wanted to have him on ours because I was like, wow, I'd love to just talk dev tools for a while.
2: Well, oh. <laughs> so one of the things that, that I thought was really interesting was so you you, you separated the developer tool ecosystem into like four bits, and and one of them was APIs around existing products. And it seemed really interesting to me that that you know we're, we're talking about bottom up versus versus top down. When you think about you know the the mechanism by by which you know software takes over the world or software eats the world, whatever it is, that it's it's those companies that do exactly the same thing but have an API on it that is sort of the front line of those like uh, transition from the older companies to yeah. new companies and being disrupted just by having just by having an API that the developer picks and so by the time they they. I think you said this. By the time there's a a decision to be made, it's already been made.
0: Yeah, and and typically those are commodity capabilities and features. So you know, Twilio and Stripe and other things like Mm -hmm. this. The reality is not commodity in the sense of not really hard to do because it's very hard to deliver those capabilities. But more often than not, you're not going to win or lose based on your ability to better execute integrating voice or text Mm -hmm. into it than than the next guy. So, you know, what you don't want to do is spend your valuable engineering and developer resources recreating mm-hmm. something that in the end probably won't allow you to win in whatever segment you're in, but mm-hmm. are absolutely important essential parts of the overall experience. And when you can find those things, and it also helps when you find those things that actually have natural business models attached to them, you know, mm-hmm. where it's well understood that you pay for the consumption of yeah. those capabilities, and I you can build the- extraordinarily powerful businesses. So,
2: um, I, I love the background checking as, a, as an Checker, API. Yeah. 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 it's it's just such a good model. like ex- exactly as you say like you're used to paying for for background checks. Yeah, and, and the reality is it's not your core to your business. Yeah, yeah.
0: and it's not like one company's going to be better at background checking right, right, that's right, going right. to allow
2: you to, to yeah. differentiate and you know Lyft isn't going to be, beat Uber by by, by being saying it's it's background checking muscle. Y- exactly.
1: Well. But you got to be maybe maybe.
0: But you got to be good at it. I mean yeah. the bottom line is you got to be really really good at it. But it's typically not the basis of competition.
1: Yeah, it's it's table stakes.
0: Yeah. Mm. So I, uh, you know, we love finding those types of companies. The reality is they're not as plentiful. There's a lot out there, but it's hard sometimes to find the ones that have the big scalable business models attached to them. But you know, look if you ask me kind of going into the future, when I mean, you kind of look at a, a typical application that's been built, how much of it will come from API service like that versus stuff that's built, you know, custom for that application. Mm-hmm. I say increasingly there will be more and more that'll be delivered through these API services and mm. you know
2: these and they're all they're all consumed bottom up
0: well I think in the end that is the the best path to success mm. because you're not going to convince developers it, typically it's hard to convince developers to do something they have to you know <laughs> kind of want to do it themselves and so, but I also think that what ends up happening is somebody's tasked with the, you know, you need to build this capability. And they're like, why should I? That just seems crazy that I there's got to be some way. And increasingly, there's, there's got to be yeah. some way I can just I don't, f- find an API to do that. What's really cool is that that's, I think, almost like for many things now, the default question that a developer asks is there an uh, API that can do this for me?
1: Well, do, do you think it's kind of an outflow of the whole Stack Overflow thing where it's like, I do, I'll just Google that?
0: Yeah, you well know, I'll there's just, certain, I'll,
1: just, I'll just use an eight, like why
0: why? I think it's like and it's like the whole thing that's driving, I think, microservices to a certain extent. It's like look, people want to be they want to like focus in on the the the, the stuff
2: that really matters to them yeah. and their company. Right. And um, yeah, I think there's there's a natural analogy between a, a microservice and a, and a third party company yeah, that, that, yeah. that that is providing it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I definitely see that. I mean that's why people are coming to Maya and Paul's company is they're like, well we we, we know we need this. Yeah we don't want to build it.
0: No. Yeah. And the reality is you'll build it far better than they would. Anyone that goes out and tries to do what Twilio is doing right now, Mm -hmm. I mean, good luck. Yeah. Good luck. They've got, you know, several hundred engineers building capabilities to deliver a really compelling set of services that are global in nature, that are route optimized. I mean it's like good luck trying to recreate that. But it's not threatening in any way to kind of absorb that into your into your capability.
1: Well there is an interesting counter swing where like Dropbox just moved everything back in house Yeah. So I mean what's what's your take on that as a competitive advantage? In
0: terms of the the infrastructure side? Yeah. Yeah, So I think you get to a point where in many cases, I mean, this is a different conversation, but you know, we've we've heard this again and again. But I do think that if you're an organization that has kind of predictable loads and you're not optimizing for peak capacity, when you run the numbers, it it can be cheaper to run your own infrastructure. Mm. And as a guy that loves the cloud, it's (laughs) like you know, it's like I I say this with a great deal of humility, but you know there are a number of companies. We've seen a bunch of companies who come in and they they pitch to us, and they're negative gross margins. But they say we're going to move off of Amazon, uh, we're going to bring it in house. Right. And we've seen two or three companies that have done it that have gone from negative gross margins to 70 percent margins in the span of months. But it, it really, I, I think that makes sense for a subset of companies out there with a particular workload. Either they're very I/O intensive, mm-hmm. or they're not. They're highly predictable. You know um, where you can capacity plan and you can drive high levels of utilization.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you put it really well. It's just what are you outsourcing? What are you
0: insourcing?
1: Yeah, like, like here at Heavybit, we've outsourced our office. Yeah, and
2: eventually a said, nice one. Too.
1: Yes, <laughs> try, try
2: replicating this one on your own. Yeah. So w- 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 when you're looking at people who say, "Oh, we're going to bring this on prem," how do you know the difference between someone who has no idea what they're talking about, and someone who's who's actually going to do this.
0: Meaning that they're making the right business decisions, or, or meaning that they're capable of bringing it on house and running it as efficiently as they need to. I, I guess a bit of both.
2: Yeah. I mean, like, how do they know that, that when they get there, their margins will be will be what they expect them to be?
0: Yeah. It's actually, you know, I've gone through this a couple of times. and gone through this exercise. We have walked through it, and it typically, when you sit down and they 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 go kind of walk through the numbers, it's actually not that complicated of a spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. It, it it becomes obvious. Right. Right. Um, right. And again it's like I describe some of the characteristics that there might you know drive people to make that decision. You know sometimes the bigger question is are they going to be like okay so you have baked into that a set of assumptions and on just how efficient you can be at running that infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Will you be able to be that efficient at yeah. running that infrastructure? Are you good enough? Do you have a good enough operations team to right. do that? And obviously, that's a big part of the assessment we would do as a part of a deal business process. Yeah, you know? yeah.
2: I, we, we did the same thing. That, I mean, it was it was literally a spreadsheet, and we we got it down to what is the cost of a CPU error. Yeah. And what is our intuition around what the cost of a CPU error can be?
0: Yeah. So, yeah, and the thing that you want to be careful about when you do this is that you're you're again you're not undermining all the operational flexibility mm-hmm. that's introduced by continuous delivery, right? That that. Okay, now we brought it in house, but man, you know, when we want to launch a new capability, a new feature, a new whatever, now we're stuck in that old process of we got to bring in some hardware and mm. we got to you know deploy that and scale that. Like, are you really, are you undermining your ability to move quickly? And this is something that. Uh, you know, that's a, a conversation I have to have with folks and make sure that they're building the capabilities the modern capabilities for software deployment to ensure that they can do that hyper efficiently. So.
2: When we launched our CI for, for OSX, we moved from you know our, our CI for Linux runs on, on Amazon so we want a new machine that's an API call. we moved it into you know we, we want a new machine that's, a, that's an email and a couple of days and, a, and an invoice that needs to be signed. And the, the difference between you know the, the speed at which we're able to get new capacity. Like the the OSX thing sat sat in beta for quite a long time as we just constantly added new machines all the time for, for the new customers that that were coming in. And it was it grew so quickly that that we never we were never anywhere near hitting that that capacity. And so we were I think we were in beta for a year on that as a as a result. Yeah. Um, and then Once we kinda got it to like a the level where where it didn't take a human on our our end, it got to be a lot faster that we could provision, but it was still never it's never gonna be the Amazon speed.
0: I think the thing that, you know, the decision when you make this decision if you're gonna move off of Amazon and run it on your own infrastructure, it needs to be something that you have to do based on economics as opposed Mm. to something Mm. that you want to do. Like I mean, a lot of these companies, if you're trying to squeak an extra five to ten percent of gross margin out, yeah, that's on the edge of maybe it's worthwhile, but Probably only when you're really significant in size and that five to ten percent really, really matters. You know, a lot of the companies we see doing it are doing it because their their business model's upside down. Right. Yeah. And, uh, because I think that the flexibility you get from Amazon and capabilities, all that stuff, when you can focus on the things that really matter, you can invest your resources. You know, in in places that will drive long term differentiation, that's where we'd rather see our companies spend their time. Yeah,
1: that's a good way to put it. It's something that you do when you're mature and trying to eke out margin, rather than when you're trying to innovate and grow very
0: quickly. Yeah, except there are cases, even in the early stages, based on the nature of their workloads. Yeah, where they, it, you, you kind of have to do it. But that's, I think, the, the rare exception as opposed to the to the rule.
1: Well, it's optimization rather than growth. Yeah. Yeah. Our our advisor, Sean Burns, was at Flurry. Yeah. And he always laughs. He's like, You're going to build your own data center, Edith. Day.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's something we should all aspire to with all our companies yeah. at some point to be big enough where we want to build our own data yeah, center.
1: Well, so he's like, he's like, not right now, but yeah. in a couple of years, you're going to come to me for advice. I'm like, I know.
0: Then we got to talk to the big CIOs of the Fortune 500 companies, and they're trying to figure out how to get out of their data center. So <laughs> the real answer is somewhere in the middle, I'm sure. I Maybe don't they can sell them
2: to Dropbox. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> Hopefully, so. I can sublease their uh, data centers for yeah. very cheap. Well, uh, we're almost out of time, but uh, we loved having you as a guest. Do you have any final thoughts?
0: No, no, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you.
2: Thanks for listening to this episode of To Be Continuous, brought to you by HeavyBit and hosted by me, Paul Bigger of CircleCI, and Edith Harbaugh of LaunchDarkly.
1: To learn more about HeavyBit, visit HeavyBit.com. While you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other
0: developer company founders and industry leaders.